Hey there. Welcome to The Geography of Everything, the podcast where we try to figure out the geography of, well, everything. I'm your host, Ronnie Ravid. And I'm your producer, Zena Heilingha. You've probably heard the phrase, water is life, at some point in your own life. The phrase really evokes how fundamental water is to our survival as humans. However, with each passing year, it seems that more and more instances of floods and droughts caused by climate change are arising. The importance of water to our survival and our development is absolutely irrefutable. For that reason, we invited Dr. Michel Van Vliet, Associate Professor of Physical Geography at Utrecht University onto the show. Michelle is an expert on global water scarcity, so we figured she'd be the right person to tell us a bit more about this issue. In this conversation, we talk about how water usage around the world has changed over the last 50 years and consider the importance of water in producing the energy that keeps our global economy going. We learn that water and energy are inextricably linked and therefore make solving issues of water scarcity really difficult. And surprisingly, we learn that although water is globally linked, solving these problems will require local and regional solutions from everyday people, corporations, and governments alike. So, Michelle, we're so excited to have you here today. Obviously, water scarcity is a huge issue that seems to only be gaining more and more attention in the media and really everywhere you look. Um, so obviously, it's a super interesting topic. And we wanted to know a little bit more about why you specifically kind of were drawn to this topic and to this field. Yeah, yeah, water scarcity is indeed, as you mentioned, a relevant topic. Actually, uh, it's, it's also really my drive in terms of my research. Uh, I think indeed one of the main challenges that we are currently facing is how can we provide sufficient but also clean water resources in, in our changing world uh, with a growing world population, but also facing changes in climate and extremes, uh, which will also have major impacts on, uh, on our availability and the quality of our water. Amazing. So I... I I'm hearing a bit of like an altruistic sort of maybe a little bit of a superhero element here, which I love to hear. I like to hear that someone is fighting the good fight at the end of the day. Um, so I guess I just want to know a little bit about maybe if we could have a little brief history lesson here. How do we as humans use water? I mean, obviously we drink it and we bathe in it, but we use it beyond just that. So I was just wondering how has the use of water sort of changed? What are we doing with it? And if you could just let us know a little bit. Yeah, then uh, it's, it's first of all good to, to consider for what kind of sectors do we mainly use water. And so uh, more officially in terms of water use, uh, we commonly consider the sectors that, that physically extract water uh, from groundwater service water systems. Uh, and there we consider actually four main water use sectors. Uh, first of all, agriculture, uh, domestic, energy and manufacturing. Uh, but of course, there are more uh, functions that, that actually also depend on water, like for shipping or for swimming, recreation purposes. Um, but focusing more on these, these general sectors, 
uh, like, uh, first of all, agriculture. Uh, we see that most of the ward is actually being used for irrigation of crops. Uh, that contributes to about 70% of, of our water withdrawals in the world. Uh, to a lesser extent, also water uh, needed for livestock. Then when we focus on domestic use, and uh, that also includes water for drinking purposes, uh, and for energy use, we talk about water needed also, including water for power plant cooling, for instance. They also are really a large users of water. Uh, and also for manufacturing purposes, we also need water. Um, important to keep in mind, first of all, is that actually uh, also in terms of uh, different geographic regions that, that different sectors actually uh, dominate. So at the global level, uh, we see that irrigation is by far the largest water user. Um, and that's also the case in most of the developing countries. Uh, but when we focus on developed countries like the US and in particular also quite some European countries, uh, we see actually that equal or even higher volumes of water are being extracted to cool thermoelectric power. Really quick, what is that? <laughs> <laughs> power, those actually include uh, fossil fuel power plants, nuclear power plants, biomass fuel power plants, and they all need to be cooled to prevent overheating. So they actually convert heat into uh, electric energy. And um, yeah, so that actually requires water also in the process, or actually most of these power plants, not all, but most of them also use water as a main source for cooling. Uh, so we actually see actually quite some some differences, first of all, in space and then linking more in terms of the your question about uh, the, the historical perspective and the changes. And uh, there we actually see that over the last 50 years, uh, so that's also the the, uh, the the period that we also are reporting our water uses from those main sectors that I just discussed. And there we see actually that uh, the water use has uh, almost doubled in total. In 50 years? Yes, in about 50 years time. Uh, and uh, we also see that those trends also in terms of the, the water withdrawal from uh, so the water that is physically extracted, uh, that uh, those are very well in line also with population growth, GDP, but also the increase in uh, irrigated areas in the world, which are also the, the main drivers for this overall increase in water use over the so last decade. It seems like it's sort of growing exponentially then, right? Because or it's kind of outpacing the population growth, is it not? Because we haven't doubled in population since the 70s, as far as I know. So to hear that we're doubling in water use is quite shocking. Yeah, so over this, uh, this last, uh, yeah, indeed the last few decades, this has indeed uh, huge impacts. And it's indeed also interesting to know what will happen in the coming decades, indeed. So is this sort of a product of globalization, kind of increased travel? Is there a way to explain just this doubling? Because to me, that's a really shocking number. Yes. Yes, this has to do with, uh, well, first of all, population growth and a growing worldwide population does not only require more water for drinking, for instance, but also more food, more energy, uh, which also requires overall more water. And so that's, first of all, important to take into account. And uh, linking also to uh, your question about globalization, yeah, this, this indeed has huge impacts, also the increase in international trade. Um, that has also impacts in terms of the, uh, yeah, the distribution of water use in the world. And so when we are consuming uh, products, uh, we import uh, products from other countries, uh, there's actually also a certain what we call virtual water use. And so that is water that's actually embedded or hidden in a product during its uh, production or growth. 
Is there like an example of something like that? So um, this also relates to the water footprint. Eh? Actually, uh, different products also have, uh, we, we actually need a certain amount of water to produce these products or, or services that we use. When we drink, for instance, a cup of coffee, eh, just a uh, 200 milliliters uh, cup of coffee, we actually need 140 liters of water in total to produce that coffee. So that is actually something that we need to keep in mind. And also when we're drinking our coffee here, but... Uh, which is actually, of course, also based on, on importing products from other countries. So, yes, uh, globalization has indeed important impacts in terms of the water use patterns in the world. Wow, that is that is really shocking how much water requires to make 200 milliliters of coffee. Now I feel a bit guilty considering how much coffee I drink in a day. Um, so we obviously then need water to produce energy and make products, grow food, raise cattle move all of these things that we're then making. So my next question is, have we changed the way that water is flowing to do all these things? Uh, over the last decades, uh, or actually over the last century, there has been a huge increase in, in the number of reservoirs in the world in order to, to store water in a way that we can provide and use the, that water actually also during the, the low flow season, during the dry, uh, dry season. And so then we can use that, for instance, for irrigation of crops, or we can extract the water uh, for domestic uses, including drinking water, or for instance, for hydropower generation. And so uh, indeed, over the, the last century, there have been important impacts, like including uh, the, the huge construction of, of reservoirs in the world, which is important to mention here in terms of water scarcity issues. Yeah, I guess my question as well, though, is uh, I remember my undergrad, I, I was actually quite interested in water scarcity as well. And I saw that on the one hand, there was these big proponents of hydropower and saying, oh, it's so amazing. It's a relatively really clean way to produce energy. But then I saw this other side of it actually really threatens biodiversity. So is there sort of a double edged sword with this irrigation, this damming, the change, it, trying to manipulate what's happening on Earth naturally. Yeah, that's a very good and very relevant point that you mentioned. Um, yeah, this is, uh, the construction of dams and reservoirs in the world have indeed uh, multiple uh, adverse impacts also in, for ecosystem health in terms of uh, fragmentation of habitats, uh, as these dams are, are distinct barriers also, which may limit uh, migration of species. Um, uh, overall, so uh, constructions of dams and reservoirs uh, that has important impacts also in, in terms of changing the seasonality in river flow. Uh, so it overall results in uh, lower uh, flow during the high flow season, but higher flow during the low flow season, because that is actually what we want. We want to store water that we can use during the low flow season. But uh, well, this also has impacts, for instance, on uh, aquatic ecosystem health. Yeah, I can imagine. I would also imagine if there's sort of a, a water sharing situation and someone wants to dam upstream, it could really affect downstream people from what they want to do. I could see that as being a clear issue. Um, so kind of circling back really quick to this water and energy, you mentioned that basically all types of energy production, whether we're thinking of this new age, like solar energy or fossil fuel extraction, whatever it is, it all requires water. Is that right? 
Well, most of these technologies, indeed, uh, we see that that overall the, the water and energy sector are really intrinsically linked. Uh, so we need indeed water to provide uh, some of our energy resources. Uh, about uh, 70% of the electricity worldwide is produced by hydropower plants. Uh, 76% by these thermoelectric power plants, uh, which uh, needs uh, or most of them also need water for cooling. Um, so that's important to keep in mind. On the other hand, uh, we also need energy to provide clean water resources, like for wastewater treatment, for desalination, water pumping. So there are indeed some, some two-sided relations. They are intrinsically linked water and energy sectors here. Oh, that's quite that's quite interesting to see that not only is water then like a limiting factor for energy, but then energy kind of seems to be in a degree a limiting factor to water use as well. So I think we often talk about these issues really separately, especially in the media. You hear water separately and you hear energy separately, but maybe there's kind of a need for us to start understanding how linked these two issues are, right? Yes, that's indeed a very relevant point that you mentioned. They are really uh, traditionally studied in isolation, but over the last years we see uh, also uh, much more scientific studies that also really call for the need to to sh- look at the the nexus of water and energy systems, to look at the, the interactions that exist. Yeah, and I guess that kind of brings me to a thought. So Zena and I are in urban and economic geography. So a lot of times when we think about things like natural resources, we also think about the economic and developmental implications of them. So it's, I think, quite a acceptable truth that as cities, countries, societies develop, they need more energy. Things like raising more crops or cattle or building things. So as more countries in the world develop that historically were um, not developed, does that mean that we're going to need more water? Well, that depends a bit also on uh, what kind of uh, energy technologies are being used uh, to supply these systems. Um, so uh, an overall, an increase in wind, solar, PV, uh, tidal energy are expected. Uh, but on the other hand, also, uh, if we look at uh, also scientific studies uh, from integrated assessment models, which make projections of tu- future changes in energy technologies, uh, we saw also considerable contribution of increases in hydro power, uh, nuclear power potentially, uh, concentrated solar power, which also requires water, and also biofuel production, of course, which also is important to mention here. So um, and that may indeed also uh, place further demands in terms of, of water use. Um, and also uh, those developments may also uh, substantially increase uh, the water use from the energy sector, but also in, yeah, indirectly the, the implications on water scarcity. So what I'm hearing is that in this sort of globalized world where we're having more of these countries that historically were not developed, developing, we will need more water for them to generate energy and to continue their development. But I will say I have limited knowledge about this. But from what I remember from my fifth grade science class, water around the world is connected. They don't just exist separately in individual countries. We're all actually sharing it, right? Yes, exactly. That that is uh, fully correct. Yeah, um, yeah. Water is indeed connected. So uh, the availability of of our worldwide water resources is uh, is overall driven by the combination of uh, patterns in precipitation, so rainfall, snowfall, and evaporation. 
and those are globally connected by by our water cycle. And so where uh, the water, uh, the land, uh, and also from from uh, oceans evaporate, um, are carried in the atmosphere by water vapor. Uh, then condensation starts, uh, which is visible as clouds, forming droplets. Uh, the water enters the land surface again as precipitation. So, and then, uh, yeah, it's, it's partly uh, stored by vegetation, what we call interception, or it's stored in soils. A part evaporates again. Uh, a part also reaches groundwater and, and supplying water to streams and, and rivers, or it directly actually uh, runs off over a sloping land surface, providing uh, water directly to streams and rivers. So that is uh, indeed that, that this is actually all interconnected, and uh, the cycle is repeating over and over. So any kind of effect on one part of the cycle throws it all off, right? Yeah, that has indeed implications on the whole cycle. That is in some way true. Yeah. Yeah, because I grew up in California, right? And I think since about 2014, 2013, something like that, we've been in this horrible drought. And a big part of that as well is that we share water with a lot of other states. And California produces a lot of agriculture, so it's starting to sort of have this ripple effect on other places that rely on water that used to flow through California that now we're using. So I imagine that besides just from the water cycle, all of these shared water resources are really global. And so it makes water scarcity a problem that can only be solved from cooperation, right? Yeah, yeah, that's in some way, uh, it's, it's a global issue. In some way, it's, the impacts uh, also uh, strongly vary in space. And so we see, uh, for instance, if we look at the patterns of water scarcity in the world, there are clear hotspots, uh, like you mentioned, indeed, already California. Uh, but also in uh, Eastern Asia, we see uh, important hotspot areas there in terms of Eastern China, uh, India, in particular important to mention here. So, um, yes, but also I think... Um, in terms of solving these issues, also uh, also local specific water management uh, implications are important. So you mentioned hotspots. So there are different hotspots of water scarcity in the world. I imagine that these hotspots all have different causes of why they uh, are scarce on water. Could you maybe explain what the different causes are? Yeah, simply there are actually three main causes that we could consider which contribute to higher water scarcity. Uh, that's first of all a decline in water resources availability. Uh, next to that, an increase in sectoral water use. Um, but also, uh, for instance, uh, deterioration of water quality may also increase water scarcity. For instance, when uh, water quality limits for certain sectoral uses are exceeded. And for instance, when uh, the water would uh, be too saline to use that for irrigation of crops, and that may then also contribute to higher water scarcity for irrigation purposes. Um, so what we see actually in those uh, water scarcity hotspots that I mentioned, like uh, eastern China, India, uh, that we overall see that um, uh, these excessive uh, water extractions do not only contribute to water scarcity more from um, a water quantity perspective, uh, but the polluted return flows uh, also degrade water quality downstream, uh, which may limit also the potential for using this for other sectors downstream, and therefore contributes to higher water scarcity there. Uh, so we see in particular also in regions of the world with uh, limited wastewater treatment capacities and wastewater treatment levels that that um, 
uh, that uh, yeah, water quality may also have an important role here in terms of uh, contributing to water scarcity in the world. You mentioned that water can be too saline to to use. So to what extent is desalination of water a solution to this problem right now or will it be in the future? Yeah, yeah it's a, that's a very relevant question. Indeed, desalination is considered as an important key to uh, alleviate water scarcity in the world, uh, similar also as uh, treated wastewater reuse between different sectors. Um, uh, and indeed, uh, we, we actually have also looked at this. Also, uh, in my research group, we have looked at the potential of, of both technologies and to what extent can we alleviate water scarcity and also the people affected by this. Um, and we, for this, we used our computer models of uh, water availability, water use, water quality, and we combined this also with detailed data sets of more than uh, 15,000 desalination plants in the world and also uh, uh, the geographic location of, uh, of treated waste water reuse and uh, well we found actually that in principle we can uh, reduce the population that is uh, facing water scarcity in the world from 40% to 14% uh, from this resource perspective but we, that would uh, require a strong increase in the capacities of both so that would uh, require uh, a doubling in terms of uh, desalination capacity and actually uh, in terms of treated wastewater we use that would even uh, mean that we have to quadruple the um, the, the capacity of, of treated wastewater reuse and and what is actually very important to mention here is that uh, we can make these calculations of course but there are also quite some side effects of these technologies um, first of all, in terms of the, uh, the economic costs and, and also the lack of funding in quite some, uh, in particular, uh, low and uh, low middle income countries in the world. Uh, next to that, also the, the high energy demands uh, that these technologies require, uh, like we, we discussed already. Uh, so also in terms of expanding these technologies, we need to ensure that, uh, that we provide the energy uh, from uh, renewable energy resources in a sustainable way. And also another side effect, which is also very important to mention here, is that the rest product in terms of uh, these technologies, like for desalination and next to the, um, the product water that is we use, the fresh water that we use for certain sectors, uh, there is also uh, a hypersaline rest product, which we call brine. And in quite some regions of the world, this brine is actually disposed directly, in particular to seas, oceans, and that has also impacts in terms of ecological risks. So, yeah, important to mention is that indeed, to some extent, uh, desalination can be an important uh, option or a, an important solution to alleviate uh, people affected by water scarcity, but the side effects should also be considered here. Yeah, I'm hearing this sort of real catch-22 here, where uh, you need... You need to clean the water, but to clean the water, you need the energy. And in order to have the energy, you need to have the water. But then if you clean the water, you have more pollution that pollutes the water. <laughs> yeah, it's an ironic message in that sense. Yeah, <laughs> like I find that difficult. So I'm wondering, can you also use saline water for industrial uses or for the cooling of energy plants? Well, for some purposes, it, yeah, it can indeed. Um, like seawater is indeed being used also, for instance, for cooling of power plants. Uh, but also here in terms of this uh, issue about uh, desalination, I think it's also quite important that we further consider uh, to what extent we can use this REDS product in a, uh, in a useful way. 
if we can use this, for instance, to produce salt that we want to use for different purposes. Yeah, so I'm hearing that we're going to need quite a bit of creativity and sort of innovative thinking in order to actually solve this problem. Um, and that maybe we do need a, either a bottom-up or a top-down sort of shift in the way that we're thinking about water, right? Yeah, yeah, in that sense, and water as a resource, yes. Yeah, so would it be safe to say that we have less water than we used to to do all of this? Because again, going back to being from California, when I was a kid, it would rain a lot in the winters, and then now it just does not. And so when you go to the reservoirs there, you can see a very visible change in the water level. So is that a trend that we just see overall? Well, at the global level, uh, it does not mean that, uh, for instance, climate change, that that results in, in less water at the global average level. But it has huge impacts in terms of the distribution of water, both in space and in time. So in, in terms of the geo geographic distribution and also uh, throughout the year. And what we also see is that uh, that there's an overall increase in uh, the frequency, but also the intensity of, of extremes such as droughts, heat waves and floods, uh, which have also important implications here in terms of the availability of our resources. But for instance, also in terms of um, yeah, the, the, the sectoral water use. And like we also see that during heat wave combined with droughts that we overall see that uh, this, uh, this increases the water demands for irrigation. Uh, we also need more water, uh, for instance, for domestic uses, like we saw also in the Netherlands, for instance, and that during the recent droughts that this resulted in, uh, yeah, also in temporal increases in drinking water use of, of 50%. So uh, that's quite substantial and, and important to consider. I, I guess I, I, that definitely does make sense to me that climate change is not necessarily decreasing the water, but maybe changing where it is and how it's getting there. I remember yeah. I read this story about Bangladesh where they kind of had these dual issues where on the one hand, their what was their rainy season became really dry and they were suffering from these droughts all the time. And then as soon as these monsoon seasons would come up, they would have these horrible floods. And so it seems like we're now kind of grappling with this new issue of when and where are we having the water and what can we do to mitigate that? It just it seems so multi-pronged the more that we talk about this. Yeah, it puts indeed some uh, additional challenges for our water management to deal with that. Yeah, you're right about it. So going off of that, I mean... We've talked a lot about how this issue is going to need quite a lot of innovative thinking and to a degree quite a bit of global cooperation in this. So what is the future of water? You know, what do we need to do to to kind of get ourselves out of this hole? Yeah, I think it's, it's important to think about, um, first of all, identifying uh, what are the exact drivers of water scarcity. So I already talked about that, three general drivers, but the contribution of those drivers uh, that vary also in space and over different geographic regions, also in time, for instance, during drought events. Um, to better understand these drivers, we can also better understand what kind of solutions are most appropriate to alleviate water scarcity. For instance, whether we should uh, continue to focus on uh, further uh, expanding 
the, the construction of reservoirs in the world uh, to store water and to, to increase water availability during low flow season, or whether we should focus actually more on increasing uh, the water use efficiencies for different sectors, uh, for instance, switching to drip irrigation in terms of uh, other techniques, or uh, for instance, in terms of power plant cooling, uh, that we further use more uh, dry air cooling systems rather than these, these uh, cooling tower or these wet cooling tower systems, uh, which still have quite some uh, considerable water demands. Um, so there are actually different ways or whether we should focus more in terms of improving our water quality, in particular in regions of the world where um, uh, that we just discussed, uh, where uh, water quality uh, may also be a substantial driver to water scarcity issues. So it seems like we kind of need these sort of local solutions for local problems, right? There's not going to be one catch-all way to deal with this issue. No, no. I think indeed, uh, yeah, using indeed more local and uh, regional specific information is very important here. Okay. Yeah. See, that's quite interesting, I guess, for me to see the solutions actually lie in the local when the problem is in fact global. I think that's sort of a trend that we see a lot in our world today. And it's definitely interesting to see that it applies to water as well. So I guess kind of a last question on the future of water and what we sort of need to do to maybe stop this snowballing of water scarcity. Is there something that we need to see from like the regular population? Like, I don't know, taking shorter showers or not watering your lawns? Or is that sort of negligible? I think it really also starts on an individual level, indeed. Uh, limiting your water use is, of course, always good. Uh, and to be more aware of that, that is indeed something that we can directly do already and where we can directly contribute. So uh, I would definitely support that anyway. Yes. All right. So everybody listening, 90 second showers, <laughs> no more. We got to save the world. Can we also do that in the way we consume, as in the products we yeah, buy? Yes, of course, like with meat, yeah, that uh, requires also a lot of water. So not only in terms of uh, reducing carbon footprint, but also uh, reducing your meat consumption can also be from a water perspective also uh, be an interesting uh, switch. Okay, so uh, getting <laughs> vegetarian and short showers. <laughs> That's the main yeah, this is it. Yeah. <laughs> This is the takeaway from this episode. <laughs> um, so this conversation has definitely illuminated a lot for me in terms of, one, just how complex this issue is and how widespread it is. And not only just widespread, but how different it is in each region that you view it from. So I definitely learned a lot about what it would mean to even begin trying to solve these issues. Um, and most importantly, we talked a lot about how the geographies of these places is really going to impact whether they're in a place that's historically really dry or too wet or they have too much pollution in their water or whatever the issue might be. So it seems like geography is sort of inextricably linked to this issue, right? Yes, yes, definitely, yeah. So... In your eyes, what is geography? Yeah, for, for me, geography um, means that we study uh, the spatial and temporal patterns of the key interactions that exist between human, 
resources and nature. And here, as, as one of these key resources, um, yeah, I think water directly connects to human and, and, and nature and also to other resources like energy and food, like we discussed. Yeah, I really like that. I like the idea of geography being the study of how we're maybe connected to the world around us. This podcast was recorded at and made possible by Utrecht University. Yay!